Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, good morning. Isn't it exciting to be a part of a church that is reaching out in mission to the community? I mean, it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, we just heard a testimony of our students who have gone out and shared the love of Jesus Christ, knocked on doors, gone to numerous apartment complexes all around Arlington, Texas, to share the gospel. I mean, what did you do with your spring break? I mean, come on, that is awesome. And so we are grateful for that. And then you saw a video about what's happening with our Afghan refugees and the opportunity that we've had to adopt a couple of families. You heard from one of our teams, uh, Wanda and Jim Satram are doing a tremendous job and the, the 18 other people that are working with them. But there's also another team that's working with another family from our church. It's just amazing to see what God is doing. Isn't that awesome? Let's just give the Lord a, a, a round of applause. Today we're going to talk about the good news. The good news. Poor Aaron, man. The last two weeks he's had to talk through some of the most difficult passages in the Bible. This heavy, heavy indictment against humanity that is sin and our wickedness and our unrighteousness. But today we get to the good news. My turn. I'm excited. So we're going to talk a little bit about words. You know, words are important. Words are important for a number of reasons. Um, I was thinking the other day about what happened on January 6th last year. You know, we call it the Capitol protest or the Capitol riot or the Capitol insurrection. Now, whether this is right or wrong, whether you agree or disagree, you can't help but see how the words make a difference in the way that we describe the same event, right? And so each word brings, frames the event in a different way and gives us a different perspective, a different understanding. So words are very, very important. Words can be limiting. They can limit our understanding, and words can also increase or enrich our understanding. For example, did you ever sit and listen to two doctors talk about your diagnosis? You can't understand a word they said. They might as well be speaking Mongolian or something, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. Every profession has its jargon, right? Every profession has its way of speaking. They use words in a way that makes you feel like you're on the outside and they're on the inside. That they know and you don't. Words can be limiting. And theologians do the same thing unfortunately. It's our job to make the gospel clear to people, but yet we sometimes use words that make it ununderstandable by other people. And we use words like soteriology, and uh, we talk about the parousia, and we talk about this, and we talk about that. And people are like, what are you talking about? 
Well, there are words here in this passage that are used by the Apostle Paul that are given to us in order to illustrate and enlighten us about our salvation. And so we're going to focus on those words today and try to understand more completely the incredible, amazing salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. For the last 63 verses, 63 verses, the Apostle Paul has been making a point that we are all separated from God by our sin. We're condemned. We are enslaved. We are under the righteous and just wrath of a holy God. We are incapable of living up to the most basic standards of righteousness and morality. We have broken God's law. We have distorted God's image. We were made to bear God's image. And yet we have distorted God's image before the world and before all of creation. Because of this, we deserve to be judged. We deserve the sentence of death. Amen? That's the bad news. That's the point that Paul has been making for the last 63 verses. As a matter of fact, he sums it up in our passage today with this one short phrase. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter if you are new in the faith or have been uh, a Christian all of your life. All of us have sinned. All of us have not risen to the standard that God has set. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Our passage today, however, begins with these two most incredible words. They are but now. But now. That transition is coming. Paul's argument is about to change. No longer is he talking about our condemnation. You mean to tell me that there's hope? And the answer is yes. There is hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God has been revealed to us. It was a secret. We didn't know that God's righteousness, that he was going to reveal a plan of salvation for us. And when we look back in the Old Testament, it's not that it wasn't ever mentioned that God made it up on the fly. God had been planning this from the very beginning. When we put on our Jesus glasses and we look at the Old Testament, we see the grace of God and the coming of Jesus on every page. Amen? When we read the stories of the Old Testament, we realize that God was graceful, that God was planning his, his salvation of, our, of, of all of us, of his people from the very beginning. And we'll learn more about that in upcoming sermon, so don't miss out, okay? Stick around. The book of Romans continues to build in this glorious, most incredible picture of our salvation. So today, 
we're going to look at three pictures of God's amazing grace for us. We're going to look at three words in particular that Paul uses to illustrate our salvation and help us to understand how deep God's grace goes, how deeply he loves us. We begin in the courtroom. We begin, we begin with a word that is borrowed from the judicial world. The Apostle Paul says, all of us are justified freely by his grace. Now, that all of us means all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. All of us who have made a commitment to believe in Jesus Christ. That's all we need to do. We don't have to do anything else. It's a gift, a free gift that's been given to us. And if we just believe in Jesus, then we shall be saved. Then we can experience this incredible grace of God. He says, all are justified freely by his grace. What does the word justified mean? We use it. We talk about justification. We talk about uh, what it means to be justified. It's used many times in the book of Romans. But do we really understand what it means? Imagine, if you will, that you're in a courtroom. The judge has put on his black robe. He's sitting in his bench. I have props. He's sitting in his be- at his bench, and he has a gavel in his hand. The case has been laid out against you. It's been a long case that the prosecution has laid out. And you haven't really had any defense. There's no defense for what you've done. It's clear to everyone that you're guilty as can be. That you committed the crimes of which you're being accused. You're waiting for the judge to make his final declaration, and you know what it's going to be. You're awaiting your sentence, and you know that that sentence will be a sentence of death. The judge approaches his bench. He takes his place, and he begins to speak, and he declares that you are acquitted of all of the crimes that you have committed. You're standing there in shock as the judge raises his gavel in the air and brings it down. Court is closed. This case is decided. You are dismissed. You, in particular, are free to go. That's what justification means. That's what God has declared for us in our salvation, that we are free of the guilt that has been placed upon us. In the eyes of the law, we are no longer charged. God is the great judge of all creation. There's a passage in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, it says this in verse 9, the ancient of days, I love that name for God, the ancient of days, the ancient of days took his seat and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. 
This is a picture of the heavenly courtroom. You see, God is the judge. He is the one who can condemn. He is the only one who can condemn. He's got the book, man. And your name is in the book. He knows everything that you've done. God is the judge. But God is the only one that can have mercy. And when we think about God's mercy, we think, well, are you telling me then that God knows that I was sinful, he knows that I'm guilty, but he took away my punishment? Well, not really. You see, God didn't just take away your punishment. Don't think that. God didn't just remove the punishment that you deserve. God has declared you not guilty. He has restored your position and your standing in the eyes of the law. He has removed the stain on your record of the sins and the transgressions that you have committed. That's what it means to be justified. That's what God has done for us. Justification means just as if you had never sinned. Just as if you had never sinned. In other words, we stand before God just as Adam and Eve stood before God before they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, we're dressed now, we have clothes on, but we stand before God in the same way as Adam and Eve. In his eyes, it's as if we had never sinned. Amen? That's what justification means. And Paul says, we have been justified freely by his grace. Some of you may feel condemned. Some of you may be carrying this incredible guilt in your life because you feel condemned because of the sins that you have committed. And you know that God knows that you did the stuff that you did. He knows. And you carry around that condemnation in your life. There is therefore now no condemnation. The trial is over. The gavel came down in our favor. And you are free. You are free of that accusation. Isn't that awesome? Well, it gets better. Let's move on to the next word that Paul uses. He says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This word redemption, we use it a lot. We all talk about, I've been redeemed, right? What does redemption mean? What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, Paul borrowed the word justified from the world of the judicial system. He borrows this world, this word from economics. He borrows it from the marketplace. And imagine yourself, you're in Rome and you're a slave You're standing as a slave with all of the other slaves in the marketplace in Rome. Some have already been sold off for a price. You're standing in chains awaiting your turn. 
Some are prisoners of war. Some are captives from distant lands in the empire. Some are debtors who were not able to pay their debt. Regardless, all of them are hopeless and helpless because they're slaves. It's your turn. You step up onto the block and you're about to be auctioned off. Someone steps forward and pays the price for you and you're standing there in that moment wondering what horrors await you as you go helplessly into captivity. And then that person walks up who has purchased you, who has paid your price, and he removes your chains. And he sets you free. And he says, you're free to go. The price has been paid. The reason that you were enslaved before has no importance any longer. It's over. Your life begins today. You are no longer a slave. Go and live in freedom. This is what redemption means. Jesus has redeemed us. We are redeemed. We, are, we have redemption that came through Jesus Christ, the Bible says. God paid the price to redeem you from slavery, the slavery of sin that has bound your life since the time you were born. Jesus said in John 8, chapter 34, he said, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins has the chain of sin wrapped around their arms and they are in bondage to that sin that they have committed. But Jesus has removed those chains and we are now free from them through Jesus Christ. The ransom has been paid to set us free. We now have hope. We now have life. We now have freedom. You know, freedom from slavery is really a theme that we see way back in the Old Testament. Do you remember in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt? They were down in Egypt for 430 years, and during the latter part of that time, they had been enslaved by the cruel and evil king, the Pharaoh, and they were abused and mistreated by the king. And then God sends them a deliverer. And through nine plagues, he destroys the kingdom of Pharaoh. And then the last plague comes. And the last plague, do you remember what the last plague was? It was the death of every firstborn in Egypt. Every firstborn. Because it looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of God who would die to pay the price for our freedom from slavery. That's the price to be freed from slavery. And God paid it through the death of Jesus Christ. Some of you feel enslaved. You feel enslaved to sin. Maybe it's habitual sin that you continue to do and you feel like you're bound up by that sin. Some of you feel enslaved to anxiety and fear. Some of you feel enslaved to other things. Maybe uh, you're 
your own weakness, physical infirmities. But guess what? Today you're free. The price has been paid for your freedom. You're free. Begin to live a life of freedom because you have been redeemed by God. Amen? So the first word comes from the judicial world. The second word comes from the world of the marketplace. The third, wor- the third word for us comes from the world of religion. It comes from religion. We look at the temple altar. The passage goes on to say, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. This word atonement is an important word. It's a, it's a Greek word that's translated in different ways. If you're reading from the revised standard version, it would say God has presented Jesus as an expiation for our sins. If you're reading from the ESV or from the good old King James, it would read that God has presented Christ as a propitiation for our sins. Don't you love all these words? I don't want you to concentrate on the meaning of each of these words. I'm going to explain them to you. But what I want you to get is the picture. Paul is painting for us a picture of our salvation. What is that picture? Well, expiation means the wiping away of the stain of sin and the guilt of sin. That's what expiation means. It means to wipe away our sin. Propitiation means the turning away of wrath, the turning away of of God's wrath against us. This Greek word that's used here is rare in the New Testament. It's only used two times. Once right here in the book of Romans. And the other time is in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, it's used to describe the mercy seat, which is the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Put a picture up here of the Ark of the Covenant for those of you who don't remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what the Ark of the Covenant look like? Well, we think it's something like that. This is the way it's described in the Bible. It's a golden box, and on top of the box, there is a lid, and the lid had a golden crown around it, and on top of the lid were two angels with their wings outstretched toward one another, facing one another. And the Bible tells us that the presence of God dwelt at the mercy seat of God, and that meant that in the tabernacle, And later in the temple, there was a a chamber, the innermost chamber, called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was one piece of furniture, that, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant sat alone in this chamber. And the Bible tells us that the presence of God, the cloud, would rest over top of the tabernacle and that the presence of God dwelt in between the cherubims on top of that box. That's where the very presence of God was. That's where God would interact with his people. Now, 
this word is used 21 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint to describe the mercy seat. It is the word for the top of the box. All right? And so the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 16 that on one particular day, we call it the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sacrifice an animal. And that animal would be a perfect animal. And he would drain the blood from that sacrifice. And that blood would be placed in a bowl. Now, the other illustration that I have for us today is this cup. Because we talk about the blood of Jesus, right? When we remember him whenever we take communion. And so this bowl would hold that blood and the priest would go in to the very holy of holies with great fear and trepidation. And he would take a little stick that was kind of wispy and it was called hyssop and he would stick it in there like a paintbrush and he would stick it in the blood and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat in between the cherubim where the presence of God was. And the Bible tells us that that blood would cover the sins of the people for a year until the next day of atonement. Now, this was an imperfect covering of our sin. Why? Because the blood of an animal can't pay the price for your sin. You're a person. You're not an animal. And so the blood of an animal can't pay your price. It would take the blood of a perfect human being. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what was necessary. To offer the atoning sacrifice. To actually pay once and for all to cover the sins of the people. The Bible tells us that Jesus' blood is the perfect sacrifice. John the Baptist looked forward to this. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he said to his disciples who were standing around him. He wasn't saying that because Jesus was warm and cuddly and fluffy. Because he wasn't. He was saying this because Jesus was the sacrificial lamb whose blood would finally pay for the sins of the people. That's what he was saying. There's a great verse in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, which describes what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. And the Bible says that they will take their robes and they will be washed white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, that makes no sense. How do you get a white robe white again by washing it in, the, in blood? It's miraculous. But that's the way it works. That's expiation. That's the wiping away of our sins and the wiping away of our guilt. The stain of sin that resided on us because of our transgression and because of the original sin of all of humanity has been wiped away and we're now wearing a white garment. Amen? That's clean before God. 
Not because of anything that we did, but because of the blood of Christ and its miraculous properties and capabilities. That's what the Bible tells us. The other aspect of this is the turning away of God's wrath. This is propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath. And this particularly fits in the argument that the Apostle Paul's been making. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, the first of the 63 verses of condemnation, the 63 verses of, of a case against us said this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's you and that's me. You see, God's wrath is being revealed against all wickedness and all unrighteousness. It's like a laser, a laser sight on a sniper's rifle. You don't know when someone has you in their crosshairs, right? Until you see this dot appear. And there's no way to get rid of it, right? No matter where I go, no matter what I do, the wrath of God is upon me. Why is the wrath of God upon me? Because I am godless and wicked. I'm numbered among those people. And so God's wrath, it's disconcerting, right? It's uncomfortable to have God's wrath focused on us. But that's the indictment against us. God is righteous and his wrath is righteous and it's focused upon us. But God says through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that the wrath of God has been turned away and it's been turned on Jesus on the cross. It's no longer focused on us. You know, Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink it, but nevertheless, your will, but not your will, but my, not my will, but yours be done. What was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of God's wrath. The Bible describes it that way, the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus didn't want to drink it, but he drank the whole cup on the cross. The cup is empty. There's no more wrath. Some of you feel that God is against you, that God is angry with you because of the sins that you have committed because of the things that you have done, because of the mistakes in your life that you have made. But I'm here to tell you today that the cup of God's wrath is empty. Jesus consumed it all on the cross. There's no more wrath to go around. The only thing that's left that you're going to get from God is his love. That's all that's left for you is his unending incomprehensible love. And it's for you and it's for eternity because his wrath has been turned away. This, my friends, is our salvation. This is the picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us at the beginning of his argument. He's got the rest of the book of Romans 
to lay it out for us. But we could stop right here. This is enough to rejoice for eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that you have freed us from our chains. We thank you, Lord God, that your blood has washed away the stain of our sin and has turned away your wrath. We thank you, O God, that you have declared us righteous, not through anything of our own, but because of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.